Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Hello and welcome, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have Dr. Terry Walls here with us. Dr. Terry is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She has done uh, clinical research and published over 60 peer-reviewed scientific abstracts, papers, and posters. In addition to being a doctor, she was also diagnosed with MS back in 2000. Her story of battling MS using a more holistic approach is what led to her discovering the WALS protocol uh, for MS and other autoimmune conditions. Really excited to uh, have her on the podcast and really dive into her story and uh, and the WALS protocol. And uh, um, yeah, so we're going to dive right in. Dr. Terry Walls, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, you were a practicing physician when you were first diagnosed with MS. Is that right? Uh, correct. So what, tell us a little bit about that. What was that like? Um, so, you know, at, at the time that I was diagnosed, I was in the Marshfield Clinic, uh, central Wisconsin. I had a very busy uh, private practice uh, and I was working on my uh, MBA, exercise uh, into physician leadership in addition to uh, being in private practice. And, you know, I, I developed weakness in my left leg, uh, saw the neurologist said, you know, this could be bad or really, really bad. And being a physician, I had a pretty good idea of what really, really bad uh, would look like. I, and so for the next three weeks, I'm going through the workup. Um, and in my mind, I, you know, I, you know, this is sort of shocking. I, I'm, actually praying for a rapidly fatal diagnosis because I, I, I don't want to become disabled. I don't want to become a burden to my family. Cause you had uh, seen, you'd worked with patients and you'd seen that or what was kind well, of your thoughts behind that? Uh, you know, well, um, my thoughts uh, was that I'd already had 20 years of worsening electrical face pain uh, that would be uh, eventually diagnosed as trigeminal neuralgia. I, and so it's like, okay, whatever I have is a progressive problem, uh, uh, and it's going to end uh, in a, a severe level of disability. If my neurologist is saying very, very bad, I'm like, okay, this uh, could be uh, totally disabling. And I, I certainly have seen people uh, with neurologic diseases that uh, could no longer use their hands. I uh, could no longer walk, uh, could no longer do their own self-cares. And I'm like, uh, well, I, that's not uh, the future that I'm wanting for myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting about that, right, is, is I think some people have, like, people may have complete opposite uh, thoughts around that, where some people be like, well, you know what, if I'm still alive and can contribute in some way, 
I will learn to deal with it. And then in other cases, like if I don't have function of my body and other people have to take care of me, like I don't want to be here. You know, I don't want to put that burden. Where does that, like, where does that come from you? Like where, where does that, where did that decision come from for you? That's just like, look, Um, I don't, I don't, if I can't function, I can use my hands. I can't, people, other people have to take care of me. Well, I just would rather it end. Um, trigeminal neuralgia, um, and let me describe that. I, I think that'll make it easier for people to understand uh, what I was facing and what I'd already imagined in my head uh, because I'd watched my father develop uh, some um, uh, a thing called mononeuritis multiplex, a, a very painful condition uh, involving pain in his lower legs that uh, would... Uh, ultimately also add uh, motor weakness, difficulty walking. He had severe pain. It was became very, very difficult to sleep uh, due to his severe pain. His pain was continuous and relentless. And I saw that build over 20 years for him. Uh, and he died. Uh, 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 and actually, quite fortunately for him, he died of a pulmonary embolus uh, while he was undergoing uh uh, treatments uh, for his severe pain. I'd already had 20 years of worsening uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, it's electrical pain that would come here at my temple or on the other side and would radiate down across my cheek uh, to my jaw. It was also uh, deep uh, behind my, a- my eye. It would be just an instant of uh, this intense electrical pain uh, they they would come in periods that uh, originally lasted just for a day. Then it got uh, to the point where it lasted uh, several days, then several weeks. Uh, I had seen neurologist uh, pain clinics. I'd gone to the world famous uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, saw their uh, uh, pain uh, uh, service, and it was clear that. Uh, the treatments where we were being offered would ultimately fail. Then they'd go on to the next treatment. And these episodes, once they turned on, uh, uh, would build over a period of days to weeks and then would slowly fade. Uh, the intensity of the pain, if, if you can imagine, uh, like a, a, I grew up on a farm, we used cattle prods to move uh, recalcitrant uh, uh, hogs uh, and cattle uh, to get them loaded on the truck and the animal squeals when you zap them with this 10,000 volt cattle prod then they leap away the the uh, jolt uh, would be triggered once it was turned on by light, by sound by a breeze by chewing by talking by swallowing. And, you know, over the years, you know, the pain became, when it happened, more and more severe. Now, I've broken bones. This is way more severe than a broken bone. I've had major surgery. It's way more severe than major surgery. I've had two children. I've been in active labor. It's way more painful than active labor. It is the most intense pain I have ever known. Uh, and if you look at, uh, uh, you know, the descriptions of trigeminal neuralgia, uh, because it's, it involves the facial uh, area, and if, if you look 
at the what's called the homunculus, the part of the brain that uh, responds to our sensory input. The face has the most representation of pain fibers in sensory input in the body. So it's sort of like you take the pain pathways and you dial them up to maximum intensity just for a moment. And what what happens, uh, people who have trigeminal neuralgia, uh, it starts with the, as an intermittent problem. Uh, it becomes, you know, uh, more severe, so you get all the way dialed up on your pain. And at, at first, it's just fleeting, just for instant. And you have these episodes uh, that come more frequently. And then it transforms from being intermittent to constant. And when that happens, people kill themselves. Because if you imagine, um, how, how do you function when all of your sensory input on your face uh, is transformed into the most horrific pain that you've ever experienced. And when I was going through my workup, I was like, I had watched my dad. I'd already had 20 years of experience of my pain getting more frequent, more severe. It was, uh, and I thought, oh my God, is that what I'm facing? Well, my pain become permanently on like my father's pain eventually became. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. It just, it sounds horrific. It sounds terrible. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it absolutely was. And uh, I also had two very young kids. Uh, my son was eight. My daughter was five. How old were at you? At the time, eight and five. How old were you at that time? Uh, Forty-five. You're 45, and you had already been dealing with this building over 20 years up to that point. So start when you were in your Correct. 20s. Yeah. You know, actually, um, I, I should take that back. I was uh, 42, um, I, and I was 22 when my uh, face pains first began. Now it took about five years to, you know, have enough pain that's like, okay, I have to take the time to go see a neurologist. And begin the workup process. How long so did it during, take them to during, diagnose it? You know, so I I, I first saw a, a neurologist um, uh, when I was about five years into my electrical face pain. They uh, didn't. They called it a a, a neuralgia. At first, they called it occipital uh, neuralgia. Uh, gave me some medications, uh, which helped a bit, but I developed a drug rash. Uh, so I had to stop that. They tried a few others. Nothing helped. And I finally realized, like, okay, I'm just going to have to endure this. Then I had an episode of uh, dim vision when I was out rollerblading um, in Wisconsin on a hot August day after work. I lost vision in my left eye. I took off my uh, roller skis and walked, you know, uh, the five miles back home. I uh, saw a different neurologist who's on call, uh, went through a big workup and no clear diagnosis. Uh, And they just said I had autonomic dysfunction of the retinal blood flow. So don't push yourself so hard, particularly in hot weather. Hmm. Uh, And it became apparent that 
uh, you know, and I'm an athlete. I hadn't had kids yet, uh, so I was still racing and training. And if I raced, my visual acuity went down. Uh, and if I raced, the color perception was just a little off and a little different between my uh, two eyes. You know, and I thought about, you know, going to another eye center, uh, uh, getting another uh, second opinion about all this. You know, but life was busy. And I said, ah, uh, you just put up with it. You know, um, and I moderated my physical, the intensity of my uh, training, uh, the intensity of my races. You know, at that point, you know, I, I'm still... Uh, very much an athlete. Uh, I'm doing the Berkebeiner, the 55-kilometer ski race uh, in northern Wisconsin. Lots of fun. Um, but I can tell I, I can only go at moderate intensity for me. If I go all out at full intensity, my my vision is not quite as sharp. Now, is that generally a worsening condition as well, and has that stayed the same for you over the years well, worse and gotten better so that uh it, originally it, it was clear that uh, i i couldn't race as hard i uh, uh i couldn't take heat uh, uh saunas hot tubs that also uh, dipped my visual acuity i uh, and you know I, I accommodated my training i had a couple of kids uh, and you know, and I, now I'm uh, working on my treadmill, on my Nordic track. I'm biking, uh, pulling the kids behind. Uh, so I, I, I'm not doing as many races. And, and then I, I see that cross country skiing is that the racing? Cross country skiing, yeah. Uh, okay. Cross country skiing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, and I did yeah, my that's, hard, uh, that's, hard, that's pregnant. hard work. <laughs> yeah, I, I did uh, my Berkebeiner pregnant. That was pretty fun. Um, and then uh, yeah, I'd ski. And my kids were like water ski behind me. So uh, I'd either pull them in the sleds or they'd hang on. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was uh, clearly immense fun. And then I begin to see that skate skiing is hard. And so I just go back to classic skiing. I think, damn, you are getting to be a slug, Terry. Now, why would I think I'm a slug? I've worked out every day. You know, since I moved off the farm, I've I've done, you know, workouts every day, either my taekwondo or running or, um, you know, biking. Then when I had my kids, I was doing indoor workouts, but I never missed a day. But, you know, I'm thinking like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. I, I have to be more disciplined in my workout. I seem to be losing uh, strength. And then... Um, the, the next thing that we noticed is that out walking around, and uh, uh, my wife Jackie and I are, are uh, walking, and we can tell that the footfall sounds just a little bit different on my left leg when my left foot hits the ground than when my right foot hits the ground. And uh, Jack commented on that, and I said, yeah, that, that is a little odd. But, you know, it's a pretty lame chief complaint. So like, I, I was not going to go see my physician for that. 
And then Jackie, being a very resourceful person, said, let's go uh, for ice cream. So she walked. We walked a mile and a half uh, to the ice cream shop, got our ice cream cones, and uh, walked back. Now, And she was wise to do this when somebody else was watching the kids. Because about a half mile from home, it's very clear there is something terribly wrong with my left leg. It is enormously difficult to pick it up. I'm dragging it. It, it is incredibly hard to walk. So we get in, we sit down, and uh, Jack, Jack says, okay, honey, you're seeing, you're going to your doctor. <laughs> I said, yeah, I can't ignore this. Uh, and, you know, the next day uh, we begin the workup. Um, it, it was very apparent to me that there was something, something, something bad uh, that was happening. And this was, what year was this? Uh, this is uh, the spring of 2000. And, and, you know, this comes exactly at the time that I'm in the process of moving from Marshall Clinic to the, uh, Iowa City, the University uh, of Iowa. Uh, and I had uh, just accepted the uh, position in Iowa. Uh, and we're making uh, plans uh, for the move. And now suddenly I'm like in this workup. And I'm like, holy... Oh my God, did I just resign a position? Now I'm about to be diagnosed with something that's really terrible and I won't be able to work in my new job. And like, so I was certainly catastrophizing all of this while I'm going through uh, the workup trying to figure out what it is that I have. Well, I imagine, yeah. I mean, it must have been scary at the time. And plus, oh, it was, it was definitely very scary. Plus, two decades of worsening, you know, health conditions without exactly really knowing what was going on, right? Correct. You know, so it was it was called occipital neuralgia, where they tried a, a variety of drugs. I'd gone to pain clinics, and what was happening was um, I, I was now on daily gabapentin. Uh, when the pain uh, would come and break through, I'd go in, get to the pain clinic, get uh, injections, um, and you know, I'd have a pretty brutal uh, one week period where uh, the pain clinic was trying to get it stopped. You know, and, and at first, uh, Nathan, when this would happen, you know, I, you know I'm a farmer. Uh, grew up as a farm. You never missed your work uh, because that was just the nature of farm work. So my, my zings would be happening. I would be trying to see patients. Uh, and I, I have to really concentrate I'm not grimacing or grunting or having any kind of vocalization when I have this terrible electrical jolt. Oh, my God. And it's like getting electrocuted by a... Getting electrocuted and doing so without... And while you're seeing a patient evaluating someone or like recommending whatever pharmaceuticals or whatever you're saying to them, and all of a sudden you're just like, could you imagine? Like, I mean, you know, and, tuning in. Like, that's just... It's just wild to imagine. So, you know, I, I really concentrate on not grimacing, not grunting. And what would happen, I, I couldn't talk. So there'd be a momentary gap you know, in the fluid, fluidity of a sentence. And, and then I'd start over. Mm. And, and it was and like, a, most you know, of the time, my, it was like a flash yeah, of pain. A flash and, of pain. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my boss finally said, Terry, 
you got to stop trying to work when you're having your baby. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is crazy. That's she hard to tell. That's to hard it. to tell an Iowa farmer. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I grew up in Montana and I didn't grow up on a farm, but you know, my, um, I, I was around some farms and some cattle ranches and my, my dad's family side, my aunt had one. And, you know, I did some branding on cattle growing up and we did a lot of fishing and hunting and things like that. And, you know, even then it's like, you know, we were taught the importance of hard work. Uh, you know, young oh, yeah. people today, unfortunately, in a lot of places are not taught what hard work means. You know, they're just kind yeah. of given and handed everything and babied and coddled. And, you know, it was like when I was growing up, and I'm sure even more so for you growing up on an Iowa farm, uh, you know, uh, a couple gen- gener- couple generations ago, right? Two or three generations ago, yeah. it was even more so. It's like, we were independent. I was an independent as a kid. It was like figure things out, you know, watching ourselves at home. Like if, you know, I had to stay home, I was sick or something like that. 10 years old, like I was home alone all day. My parents had to work, you know, yeah. when I was 15, it was like, I was, I had to buy my first car and, and do it by washing dishes at a, you know, 15 years old, had a job going to school and washing dishes at a restaurant in the evenings to, to be able to pay for my own car. You know, it was like, we were taught the value of hard work and to and and today you know kids are not taught that kids are are not taught to to work hard and to you know go through the challenges and to things get tough and they just give up you know and the parents Correct. are like okay i'm sorry let's try something else it's like no you need to go through that hard work so you as an iowa farmer i can imagine you know as someone saying hey you know you're having some pain stay home and you're probably like yeah right <laughs> yeah that, that's yeah, you just not what you do. This is your work. Um, You know, these are my patients uh, and it was better for me to see them and take care of them than to expect uh, someone else who didn't know their story, didn't have that relationship, didn't have all that context. Yeah. And so let's take a step back for a second and talk. What was it like growing up uh, on a farm in Uh, Iowa in what, what year was that when you were, you know, teenage years on a farm in Iowa? Let give us the experience of what that was like. Okay. So I have two older brothers, uh, and, um, we had, uh, milk cows, uh, we had sows, I had little baby pigs, uh, and we raised the, the pigs up, uh, 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 as feeder pigs, uh, to slaughter. We had hay to, uh, that we, Bailed, uh, filled our barns, uh, made haystacks to fill uh, both the dairy cows and the beef cows. We also had a little pony when I was a little girl. Uh, then we got an Appaloosa mare that was pregnant. So uh, we had uh, Appaloosas, uh, which are uh, a, a light horse. Uh, lovely, lovely uh, for uh, trail rides. Uh, and so plenty of work, plenty of opportunity to, to learn skills. You know, I know how to, to build fence, um, uh, bale hay, uh, uh, oats, uh, uh, straw, uh, uh, corn. Uh, we, you know, you'd get up at 530. At what, age, met, at what age were you starting this kind of work? Like what was the earliest age? Oh, forever. You, you know, as soon as you were walking, you accompanied uh, parents uh, to the barns. And I, I played in the calf pen while uh, my parents did the milking. Uh, and then as a, they got a, a little bit older, uh, then my job was to go out and get the cows and chase them in. 
uh, and I would help carry the buckets back, back and forth. Uh, and so um, I, I always remember helping with the barn chores morning and night. Uh, and uh, that probably began as soon as I was walking because the, the alternative was to leave me alone in the house while my parents did the chores and they didn't want to do that. So the kids came out to the barns and we were doing stuff uh, to be helpful. And then when you're bringing crops in, you're doing stuff to be helpful. Um, so um, in the haying process, my mom and I were in, in the barn uh, and mom's uh, taking the bales, lifting up overhead to me and I'm the highest one up and I'm packing uh, the, the bales as we get uh, up to the roof. Uh, in uh, harvesting corn, uh, my dad's, op uh, he's the one who's operating the heavy equipment. Um, and my mom uh, and my brothers and I are driving it up uh, and unloading it uh, into the corn elevator into the, the barn uh, in the corn cribs uh, uh, that would uh, hold the, uh, the corn in. It was uh, similarly uh, for the oats. Uh, then in, in the spring and in the fall, uh, there's a repairing fence, uh, building new fence, uh, and uh, driving these posts in, building the corners, building the gates. Uh, and you have a lot of daily chores that need to happen. Then you have episodic seasonal chores that need to happen and skills that will happen because you're, you're watching your parents do all of this. And then as you get older, you get either stronger, um, more reliable, then they teach you and it's your job to do this stuff. Uh, um, uh, you know, another uh, sort of interesting seasonal task is chopping thistles. So, um, my dad would would have a spade and a file, and then my dad would assign a, a field to you. And it was your job to go walk through, you know, 15 acres, 20 acres, 40 acres, and chop all the thistles out of that field. And then he would drive around, and if there were any thistles left when you said there were none, you know, there'd be consequences. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like my daughter, her chores, she's 11 right now. Her chores are, you know, cleaning up the dog poop in the yard, vacuuming, things like that. And and sometimes I'll check on her work. I'm like, did you do everything? Did you? Yes, I did. Really? Did you go over here, here? What if I go out and find, you know, a... Because uh, we're also teaching her good money management. So she has a oh, yeah. account. So she earns, you know, $7 for... And she has seven different accounts, a savings account, uh a personal account, you know, for play an investment account. So learning the money management oh, perfect, skills, I yeah. wish I learned as a kid, right? So she gets a dollar for each account and then she saves her play money and can buy whatever she wants. I'm like, well, I'll bet you your play money, you know, if I go out there and I find one, you know, you're going to give me your play money. Or if I don't find anything, then you're going to double it. Oh, and then she'll question, you know, like, uh, I'm like, well, so you better we'll go, out there and go, check. go out there and double check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a little more after, you know, and catching her a few times, like, what is this? What is this? What is this? She's, she's a little bit more pays attention, but. You, you know, know. Uh, it's interesting. So Jack had, had chores growing up. Uh, I clearly had uh, uh, huge chores, which when I was really young, I resented when I went off to college, I was immensely grateful. Uh, 
and and we talked about how it would be vital for Zach and Zeb to have chores, and yes. uh, they were going to have chores. We would be um, making work for them if we didn't have work, but they were going to have uh, have real work. And then, as I'm diagnosed and becoming disabled, um, we're talking like you know, God listen to us. You know, uh, our kids had chores and real work. And just like, you know, the work I saw on the farm that I understood I had an important role to play, that Zach and Zeb would have an important role to play uh, in how our our household life existed. And, you know, in the same way that growing up when I was really young, I at various times was quite resentful of some of the work I had to do on the farm. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's just developmentally what kids do. We resent work. Right. Uh, and our uh, parents <laughs> want to uh, play and have fun and yeah, not have you know, any responsibility. <laughs> it's like, you know, that that's what, what kids do. And of course, yeah, our, our kids uh, resented work and chores. Uh, but now as adults, they uh, talk about how uh, valuable uh, that, uh, that chores and work uh, and understanding that the work they did in our household really had meaning because of the circumstances uh, of my life. Well, I think that's important. Well, in your case, especially more so, right? They, they, I'm sure they even have so much more appreciation for that now, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even more then, but more now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, you know, it is important to, to, to communicate these things, you know, the de- like I'm a why person. I love the why behind yeah, everything. Yeah. Someone's like, go do this. I'm like, why? You know, I'm a, yeah. like, I want to understand the why behind it before I just go do something. And I try to teach my kids the same. I try to, you know, respect my kids in that way. Like give them the why. They may not like what I tell them to do even with the why. But, it, but I, I completely agree. Yeah, at least they understand the deeper why behind it, you know, and that's that's important. You know, if you're telling kids like, you know, don't do drugs. Why? You know, don't drink alcohol. Why? It's like, well, it's bad for you. Well, no, they need more information than that. They need, they need a lot more than that. You know, it's also fun. Like they need to know the truth. Like those things are also fun and they feel great and they're amazing. But, you know, uh, they, yeah. they can lead to some really terrible life experiences, addiction, death, etc. So, you know, I think I think I like to look at the full why of things as well. Um, and I think that's yeah, important you know, for kids. Uh, both of my kids went through a period where... Um, they're complaining, you know, uh, very, they're very upset that you know, they have to do the laundry or uh, they're um, uh, doing the cleaning and, you know, stomping their, their uh, little feet and saying, none of my friends have to do these things. This is so not fair. You know, and, and I would, you know, I'd be very empathetic. Oh, yeah, I, I, I can understand. It's so not fair that you have to know about dishwasher soap but it's so not fair that you know about laundry and that you and your friends don't and uh, but you know these are your choices what you have to do and um and it's so not fair that i have ms and i can't do these things anymore Mm. but you know that's life and so i'm going to go to work uh, and do everything that i can and you're going to do your chores because our family needs you to do them and then um you know both of my kids you know, at about the same age, that would have the same conversation, stomp their feet and say, I think you are glad you have MS so you can lecture me about my chores and responsibility. 
It must have been teenagers. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, they were uh, about 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah no, they get they got chores uh, early in life, uh, and so they're like, "Wait a minute, this is not fair." I was just thinking the attitude sounded like a teenager, but they must have been a little bit more mature for their age. Yeah, you know, you know one of the things that that we did uh, as a family, I, I came across this book, uh, "Teaching Your Children Values," mm-hmm. uh, by Steve and um, uh, Lynn Iyer, uh, and. I really love that book. Uh, so that's I got that when uh, Zach was three. Zeb was just born. And the principle of, of that book is that every day you have a conversation about a value uh, with your children. And there's ways to do it that's age-specific, you know, for preschoolers, um, elementary, junior high, high school uh, kids. And you pick one value and you talk about it for the whole month. And then the next month, the new value. So we had started that when I started uh, reading kids, reading to the kids every night. Uh, and what that taught me, Nathan, is that children can be remarkably insightful about values. And and we would uh, at first talk about the value depicted uh, by the book. Then we talk about uh, the value uh, as we saw it being played out by people's choices or our, or our own choices uh, at school and at work. And by the time the children are eight, they really are very astute by uh, what actions show courage, uh, fear, uh, love, compassion, uh, fidelity, perseverance. And um, as a result... I think both Zach and Zeb were far more mature and insightful than their peers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the difference of having, you know, emotionally intelligent, emotionally invested, um, deeply responsible, uh, you know, deeply caring parents who are, you know, really thinking through and doing everything they can to, to help their children develop and I think that's that's a, that's a really challenging thing in today's world because of how fast paced everything is. You know, both parents are usually working full time jobs. Um, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet, right? And they wake up. You know, kids go to school. You know, kids are at school all day. Parents are working all day. Kids get home. You know, parents get home, make dinner, like you know, get ready for the next day, go to bed, that sort of thing. And there's you know so much stress with bills and you know, uh, late payments and mortgages and credit cards and, 
you know, trying to plan a vacation once a year, whatever, like there's just so much going on in people's lives today just to survive and so much stress Mm -hmm. around it. Not to mention eating a very unhealthy diet, not exercising, becoming overweight, being unhealthy, and then health problems occur in the family. And so now you're dealing with that. And so the stress of that, and then, you know, a lot of kids are just kind of raised without a lot of, you know, conscious parenting awareness uh, in you know, raising those kids. And then also the parents, whatever, however they were raised, right? They are uh, often just being projected to those children, those dysfunctions mm-hmm. as well. And so Absolutely. then we just see this repetitive negative cycle. Um, whereas in your case, you know, you, you, you took charge of that and became very, uh, I you would know, say, it, intentional how you raised your kids. And then... You know, we start out being a very athletically oriented family when when the kids are toddlers, very young. And within three years of diagnosis, I'm in a tilt recline wheelchair, and we're 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 we we aren't backpacking anymore. We're we're camping, sort of car camping with my tilt recline wheelchair. Uh, and we're doing a little bit of hiking as I'm ro- rolling in my wheelchair. Mm. And I, I, I have to keep thinking very, very deeply about, okay, what does it mean to parent as I'm becoming more and more disabled? This was 2000. You were early so, 40s, and then you were diagnosed right. with MS, and then immediately yeah, and by, the wheelchair? And by 48, I, I'm in the wheelchair. Wow. Um, and, you know, at that point, Zach's 11, uh, Zebby's 8. It's like same kids, yeah. same age as my kids, 12 yeah. and 7. And, right and you know, when I, when I talk with Zeb, she's like, she can't really remember the athletic Terry, mm. the, the athletic mom. Uh, what she remembers is the tilt recline wheelchair, the uh, scene. You, you know, and imagine what, what it felt like for my kids uh, because when my trigeminal neuralgia turns on, light, sound triggers the pain. The pain may just come on randomly because of a, a breeze. Uh, chewing, swallowing, speaking, they want to comfort me, but touching me triggers the pain. Uh, and so um, how traumatic that was for them to watch these episodes of um, uh, what they they knew were really horrific pain, and, and so I'm trying as hard as I can to not grimace, to not scream, to not vocalize, because I don't want to traumatize them. So right. they they can see me uh, wincing, they can see the tears uh, streaming down my face because I can't turn that off. You know, I I can concentrate so hard to not grimace, not move, not grunt. Um, but I, I might be in the midst of trying to say something and I stop talking because I, I'm so for a couple seconds, I can't talk. Uh, I'm completely still. Uh, eventually it gets so that my knees sort of buckle. Uh, you know, that was definitely uh, traumatic experiences for them watching the level of pain that I, that I would episodically endure. Dealing with all that, dealing with all that pain for so long. I mean, did you ever, did you ever think about just ending your life? Did you ever think about just 
ending it? Well, um, so in 2007, at my nadir, uh, I can't sit up in a regular chair. Uh, I have a zero gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. I have one at work, one at home. Now, fortunately, I'm st- my mind is still clear, so I'm still staffing clinic. Uh, uh, the residents see the patients uh, talk to me. Uh, and I am at the, uh, I staff the uh, committee that reviews the research. It's called the IRB, Institutional Review Board. And, and that's my, uh, my work. Um, I, I have these episodes of pain that is more frequent, more severe. I, I've come to terms with the fact I'm going to become probably uh, bedridden by my illness because I, I can't sit up more than 10 minutes anymore in a regular chair. I'm going to probably become demented because I, I can tell uh, I'm beginning to have some brain fog. It's harder to function at work. My pain is more frequent. When it turns on, I go get infusions of really high-dose steroids. It takes five days to get uh, this really high-dose steroids to get things turned off. I I go into the pain clinic and get daily injections while that's happening. And so in my head, I'm like, okay, it's going to turn permanently on. I don't know how soon, but that's coming. And when when it's on, I can't talk or I choose not to talk. I, I don't swallow. So I'm just drooling because talking or chewing or swallowing triggers the, you know, another jolt of pain. Wow. So Nathan, uh, and this is a big conversation that Jack and I've been having. Like, I I change my living well, so that if I stop talking or swallowing, there'll be no IV fluids, no tube feeds. I change my medical power of attorney, and I, and uh, in my documents, I make it very clearly that if I stop. Speaking or swallowing, it's my intent. There's no IV fluids and no tube feeds. So I find great comfort in that, okay? So no no one will extend my suffering by giving me IV fluids. And yes, I would eventually fade away. I can't volitionally end my life because my kids are watching. My kids need to say that need need to see that you always do the best you can given the circumstances you face. And that if I made any other choice, I would be teaching my children that when bad things happen, when life is difficult, you give up. And what I want to teach them is that Life is difficult. So what? You still do the best you can. And that um, if I want to show them that resilience, you, you, you can't just give up because things look difficult. Hmm. So th- wow. there's, there's no question uh, uh, to me that Zach and Zeb saved my life. That uh, Jackie saved my life. Had I not uh, had my children, had I not had Jackie, 
you know, certainly as I saw the trajectory of my life, I would have said, nope, I'm I'm not going to wait for uh, um, the trigeminal neuralgia to turn permanently on. And historically, um, over all of the time that trigeminal neuralgia has been described, that that is the most common uh, um, uh, outcome. Uh, when the pain is permanently on, uh, people kill themselves. Wow. So you you were simultaneously diagnosed with MS. Talk a little bit about what MS actually sure. is and so people understand like what that is. So you have two diagnoses going on, and the MS is progressively getting worse as well as the trigeminal neuralgia is actually getting worse as yeah, well. Yeah, right? yeah. So uh, multiple sclerosis uh, first described uh, in the 1800s. Uh, it's a neurologic problem that when you do the autopsy of the brain, the spinal cord, there are these white scars and there's multiples. So uh, the, the, it's multiple sclerosis or multiple scars of the brain uh, and spinal cord. As we've gotten smarter, and we're able to do MRIs, we can detect uh, these lesions. They're called now enhancing lesions. And we can see that they uh, come and go uh, and that people have acute symptoms at multiple locations in their brain at different time points. Uh, so that's uh, episodes separated by space and time. We now know that there's an immune attack that's going on uh, in the brain and spinal cord that lead to these symptoms that the brain can heal sort of. And we get, so relapses where you have symptoms, remissions where things greatly improve. Uh, and about 80% of the folks are diagnosed with relapsing remitting. Uh, 10% will have, instead of ever improving, just have this slow, relentless decline and of the folks who have relapsing remitting, eventually the relapses disappear and all you have is this uh, progressive decline. People who have uh, multiple sclerosis within seven years are out of work. If you have a manual job that requires you to physically do stuff, uh, then you're out of work usually within three years. The time from diagnosis to um, problems walking uh, is usually uh, 10 years. Uh, uh, the time from diagnosis to wheelchair is usually 15 years. However, that conversion uh, to problems walking is also uh, tied to age. So uh, it's around 45 that the problems walking tend to show up. Uh, and it's uh, really quite where to not have problems walking or need a walker or scooter by the time you're age 50. There is a seven-year earlier uh, uh, death. Uh, there is an earlier onset of cognitive decline and frailty. Uh, we have drugs that are really very good at turning off the acute relapses. These are called uh, disease-modifying treatments, DMTs. And they have lengthened the time to need a wheelchair, <clears throat> excuse me, 
by about five years. So that, that's super helpful. However, um, you still end up losing your job, needing the wheelchair, getting demented, and dying early. Um, so that's all. I mean, all the drugs do at this point is just um, pro- slow prolong. Yeah, slow it down a little bit. Five years. Slow on it now. down a little bit. It, and and um, they have, and I'm sure they have side effects as well. And they have side effects. And you know, I, I was thrilled to take those drugs to try and slow down the um, uh, time to wheelchair uh, to job loss. Did Absolutely. they? Did they help you? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. You know, but maybe they did. Maybe I would have been in trouble sooner. I, I really only had two relapses. So from a DMT point of view, it was a huge success. So instead of having two to four relapses a year, I'd had two relapses in seven years. So if I was in a drug trial, that would have been called a huge success. Now, was that that was that was before you uh started down the path of yeah. diet and lifestyle changes that was just the drugs Correct. primarily I, I just I, you know, I was all in on the drugs okay and you know i i did my research found the best ms center in the country saw their best people uh took the newest drugs i uh took uh it continued to decline as i was declining they they uh said you know functions once lost are gone forever so let's be as aggressive as possible and i was fine with that I uh, then took mitoxantrone, a form of chemotherapy, that uh, I I knew there was a 2% chance every time I took the drug of turning into leukemia. But, you know, being disabled was worse than being dead, in my mind, so like, you know, I was fine taking the drug. Uh, My physicians had talked about um, the work of uh, Ashton Embry, who advocated for the paleo diet, I, uh, that's a big deal. I went from being a vegetarian, low fat vegetarian to back to eating meat. I continued to decline. I took chemotherapy. Then, uh, Tizabri, uh, the newest biologic drug was released. I took that. I continued to decline. Then I was switched to Salsept. Uh, and you know, I, I'm in the total decline wheelchair. It's getting really hard to set up. And that's when I asked myself, are you really doing all that you can? Uh, and, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I'd started reading, uh, uh, going to PubMed, uh, reading all that I could. And I was just getting really upset because I saw uh, the timeline to job loss, dementia, uh, disability, uh, the progressive nature of the illness. And uh, Jackie said, Terry, you got to stop reading. It's just upsetting you. So for the first four years, or three years, I, I stopped reading. But once I hit the wheelchair, I said, okay, I know how bad it's going to be. Bad. I might as well go back and read. And that's when, at first, I was reading looking for new drug studies or off-label use um, uh, drug studies. And then I had a big aha like well, you know maybe I should be looking for things that I could I could access so then I started looking at first for supplement studies mm. and I was reading supplement studies for MS and I also thought you know I don't really have relapses 
I should be reading about things that are progressive. There weren't that many studies uh, for progressive MS, so I started reading for Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Parkinson's, ALS. And I I decided that mitochondria were at the root of all of those diseases, and mitochondria are probably the root of disability for MS. Uh, And, and, you know, that was uh, like 2005. I'm like, okay. This is a mitochondria problem. Which at that at that point, I mean, there was very few, if anybody, certainly in the, you know, holistic world, functional world, even integrative world, and certainly a conventional world, anybody talking about mitochondria, right? It Correct. just wasn't. Correct. But now, now you hear it talks about everywhere all the time, which is fantastic. But then it was like nobody was talking about that. Nobody was talking about mitochondria. And, and so, all all of the drug attention was for immune suppression. Immune suppression because MS is an autoimmune disease, right? Correct, correct. And so talk a little bit about, you know, an autoimmune disease. What is an autoimmune disease? What actually happens? Because there's a group, I mean, I think there's over 100 types of diseases now that could be classified under an autoimmune disease. Correct. The last statistic I heard, actually, if you actually grouped all of those diseases into one and called them autoimmune disease, which is what they are, the the amount of diagnoses, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the amount of deaths from autoimmune disease in general is actually higher than heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all of Combined, the chronic yeah, diseases all, we have today, mm-hmm. right? Correct. So this is this is like the big elephant in the room that... Um, and if you look at the graph, um, some really interesting graphs that look at the rates of um, MS type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis. They were hardly any uh, at the turn of the century. Right. Uh, and they, they begin to tick upward at about World War II. Uh, Same with cancer. Cancer fits in there as dramatic well. Dramatic increase. And, of course, our, our genes don't change that fast. Exactly. But what we eat and do and how we live has radically changed. So all these environmental factors are, are certainly contributing to that. The, these processes, these autoimmune processes, if, if we add in people who have an autoantibody that is higher than the reference range, so it's detectable, it's abnormal, but not so abnormal that I can make a uh, organ-specific diagnosis. That's about 50 million people. If we have the people who have an autoimmune diagnosis, uh, that's 25 million. So now we've got 75 million that have autoimmune processes. And the cancer diagnoses are about 20 to 23 million. Uh, the heart disease, again, about 20 to 23 million. So this, this is a, a, a huge, huge problem where the body has begun to have our immune cells that are specifically attacking and damaging structures that we think are healthy and normal. If I was looking at them under the microscope, that like, okay, there's no damage here, but yet we are damaging these tissues. If we look at it at a on a molecular basis, however, we can see that there may be a molecular 
uh, side chain has been added to some of these molecules. Um, so my immune cells can't see that uh, molecule uh, as having been damaged, and so it needs to be removed and repaired. Um, or, or another reason that this can happen is that um, a, a microbe that I've been infected with, uh, that I'm now finally recognizing as foreign, I need to clear, has an amino acid sequence that matches some structure in my body. So my immune cells, in the process of clearing that microbe, also damage parts of me because it looks the same as the microbe. Like your thi- like your the cells of your thyroid, for example. The cells of my thyroid. That the attacks cells- your thyroid, and you end up with Hashimoto's or something similar. Correct. Right? Correct. And and now isn't it isn't it true that something in that case, um, those cells, whether it's a microbe or it's it's a it's a protein from from even a food, for example, actually has to leak through the gut into the bloodstream for that autoimmune it, process yeah, to to occur. Well, we certainly. Uh, I, we have um, the food we eat gets digested by all the microbes uh, in our gut, and so we have a large number of microbes. Some of those microbes, uh, particularly uh, some of the yeast, uh, if they overgrow, can lead to leakiness of the barrier. So I'll sort of have it here with my fingers instead of being tight together, sort of open up. Uh, and then when that happens, food particles bacterial particles um, can leak into my bloodstream. And incompletely digested food proteins uh, in my bloodstream will be recognized by immune cells as, well, no, 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 you're too big. You, should, you, you're, um, you must be a microbe. I therefore should attack you. And so uh, this is part of the reason why we think uh, gluten sensitivity, for example, is increased because the gluten is getting into our bloodstream when it should have been completely digested. Right. So, and there's some so research that, that shows that the, the gluten protein, the gluten itself, especially today, maybe not 200 years ago, we don't know for sure, but certainly today in most people is causing kind of little micro tears in yeah. that in that tight junctions, right? Like you said, it's, it's supposed to be a tight junction. It's called tight junctions for a reason. They start to get kind of like little tears where those proteins can slip through. They, they can open up. Yep. Um, uh, depending on what microbes are in your gut. Uh, but not just gluten, toxins, um, you know, alcohol can destroy the gut lining, right? Um, alcohol you know, can, uh, aspirin, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, things like ibuprofen can... Um, antibiotics uh, even antibiotics absolutely can i mean i grew up so i grew up on antibiotics right so i grew up um yeah and every time i was sick it was like you get the cold you get sick or strep throat i got strep throat a lot for some reason like mm-hmm. always had a sore throat and so i'd go in go to the family doctor always they'd check prescribe me antibiotics to be on antibiotics for a week and yeah. then and then i was fine right but i was on antibiotics so often as a kid uh, and it's then on a very problem. unhealthy diet, very stressful lifestyle, cigarettes, and, alcohol, drugs, you name it. And no wonder I was sick so often continuously in my early years um, with gut is- issues and digestive issues and all kinds of problems was constantly destroying this important 
you know, microflora environment in my, in my gut that is essential for so many health processes and functions in the body. Now, another, when I talk with um, my tribe about the autoimmunity, the, it begins with having genes that make me more vulnerable to, uh, and we know, for, at least for MS, there are about 300 different genes that will increase the risk. Most of them ever so slightly, just a half percent, one percent. So that's step one. Step two is uh, being exposed to some of these microbes that increase the risk of autoimmunity, such as Epstein-Barr virus, uh, the coronavirus, uh, chlamydia, uh, Lyme. Uh, there are about 16 different microbes. And, and, and really, Nathan, all of us will probably have been exposed to at least one of these microbes, and many of us, multiple. So that's step two, and that's where that molecular mimicry comes in. But that's not enough. Clearly there are, because the vast majority of folks who have the um, genetic vulnerability, the exposure to the microbes never get autoimmunity. So the third step are all of those environmental factors. Did I have early antibiotics, so I have a leaky gut? Did I have adverse childhood experiences? You know, my sister died when, when I was nine. That was a huge adverse childhood experience uh, for my family, a big struggle for, for many years. Uh, did I have toxins? We were a conventional farm. Uh, there were a lot of agricultural chemicals uh, that I was exposed to. You guys um, use at, pesticides on the on the food, I'm sure, on the crops. Yeah, yeah, uh, on the crops. I helped my dad spray uh, uh, for a variety of of uh, thistles uh, that uh, the Canadian thistles. We got to spray the bull thistles. We had to chop, so um, uh, we we had a wide variety of uh, agricultural chemicals I was exposed to. I'm an artist uh, through. Um, High school and college, uh, I'm doing painting. That's my uh, undergraduate degree, so a lot of solvents there. I also did metallurgy. Uh, that's lead. Uh, I went to medical school. I am thrilled as an artist to get to do gross anatomy. Like, that's like you know the artist's dream, to get to go dissect cadavers. So I have these beautiful notebooks because after gross class, I would go back unwrap the cadavers, and I'd make these beautiful drawings. So I probably have three times the formaldehyde exposure as my classmates. That's funny you call that uh, uh, as an artist uh, dissecting cadavers. <laughs> like, oh, my God, that was so, so exciting. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way before. That's funny. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, in medical school, I, I used to be outside, deep tan, plenty of vitamin D, now I'm in medical school, residency. I am very little vitamin D. Plus, then I'm trained that the sun is a problem, that all that sunlight leads to skin cancer. So now I'm using sunscreen. So I'm vitamin D deficient for a long time. And you're putting chemicals on your skin, which I actually theorized in a, in a presentation oh. I taught a while back that you know, the, the chemicals combined with the ultraviolet radiation is actually what Worse. I believe worsens and leads to higher rates of skin cancer versus just, you know, spending 20, 30 minutes a day in the sun, not getting burnt and yeah. not ever having to worry about skin cancer. I completely agree. Yeah, and then stress. You know, uh, uh, 
medical school residency is a little bit stressful. <laughs> that much sleep. A li little bit. <laughs> not much sleep. Uh, a little bit bad for you. It, you know, in, Plus the pain. I mean, the pain you were dealing the with. Uh, and the, the then. Yeah, wow. So I'm in medical school in 1978 uh, to 1982. Uh, and now at that time, uh, there are no protections of. Uh, in terms of uh, if my uh, colleagues figured out uh, that I'm a lesbian, could I be thrown out of medical school, out of residency? Um, uh, you know, times were very different uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s and having to deal with the social stigma uh, and uh, the concern. Your parents knew already or no? Uh No. No. Yeah, so that was a big, a big, that was a big I mean, deal. You know, and, big thing you, know, my, you were holding inside that fear, that worry, that that, that uh, judgment, that concern. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and my father uh, was certainly a very devout, um, uh, 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 deeply conservative uh, Christian, and so his his faith would have certainly been very uh, rejecting. So, did you ever end up? Telling them well, about it, or what? What happened? You there? know, uh, actually, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I I was in private practice. My partner of uh, many years and I uh, broke up. Um, I was depressed. I'd lost a lot of weight, and I remember uh, my father calling me uh, one evening, and he was telling telling me that um, he'd gone through hard times, uh, and that you just uh, get through that, and he talked about uh, we had had some hard times at the farm, and I said, "Well, this is not about uh, hard times at work, Dad." And he said, "You know, I know, I know, Terry, I know you're kind of gay." And so we had this remarkable conversation uh, for the next hour, maybe hour and a half. That was the first heart-to-heart -heart conversation I had with my father. Uh, it was really quite remarkable. So wow. uh, he came around, and uh, and then uh, you know when I decided to have kids, my parents were horrified. They thought, "Oh my God, uh, uh, I, uh, my child I would have uh, rejection. That I surely would be fired. That the community would not accept uh, a single parent uh, lesbian mother." But uh, they came around, uh, and uh, they ended up being uh, uh, really quite pleased, uh, and they were uh, quite pleased um, uh, and uh, were proud grandparents. Uh, and then when uh, they saw that, in fact, uh, you know, the, the community, the clinic uh, was fine. And, you know, and I also had to learn, uh, Nathan, because uh, when I – gone through that breakup and I finally uh, uh, came out and uh, talked to my medical assistants and the nursing staff said, yep, you know, I'm a lesbian. Yeah, I, I'm depressed. I, I got jilted and I'm having, I have to work this out. And uh, I would joke about uh, being gay and uh, uh, surviving my breakup. And what I came to realize is when I would just talk about my life as it really is, with my colleagues, uh, with my staff, they were fine with it. They were perfectly fine with it. They needed to see me be fine 
with living my life. Right. And right. when my parents saw that I was fine with living my life and that my community was fine with me living my life, then they were fine with me. Isn't that so funny? Because it's so true in so many areas of our life where we create this kind of, not only this facade to try to protect ourselves from the, the fear of judgment, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, it's almost a make-belief fear uh, because when we actually talk about the thing that we are hiding or afraid of the most and actually bring it out and share it, not only do we feel incredibly free, but most people don't care. Like, you know, you might they get some judgment here and you. there. Right? Yeah, especially if they see that you're okay with it and you're not, you know, it's like, look, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. And they're like, okay, you know, most people are like fine with it. And Correct. Uh, we live with these fears for so long, hiding them, so afraid of mm -hmm. judgment, when in fact, if we just share it and bring it out, there's actually nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've experienced that multiple times in my life. I mean, public speaking is a great example. When I first started public speaking years ago, it was like, I was so afraid on stage. I had so much nervousness up there. And it mm -hmm. was like, the first thing I would say was, man, I'm really nervous right now. You know, and it would just, <laughs> it would just like calm the room down. Like it would calm me down and, yeah. or, or I'd say something and people would laugh and it was like, all right, boom, the nervousness is gone. No, when good. you address it based on, usually we can diffuse it immediately. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you, oh, go ahead. It, it becomes easier when we talk about our life as it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about, um, well, going back to, to your son, I saw your son actually wrote a book about growing up with My two, two moms. moms. I thought yeah. that was interesting. I haven't read it, but I yeah. saw that there was uh, that he wrote that book, um, which is pretty cool. So, uh, all right, let's go back. You're in a wheelchair you are basically, you've tried everything, pain management, drugs, and pharmaceuticals, you know, you're just, yeah. and it's progressively getting worse. And you start researching, you start finding supplements, you start, you know, learning about mitochondria. And then, and then what happens from there? You're basically, your you know, health is declining rapidly, but you're on this yeah. deep search for solutions, which is, which is so, awesome, first of all. In 05, 06, you know, I'm reading, I'm experimenting, I'm adding a few supplements. Uh, in uh, July of 07, my chief of staff uh, calls me into the, his office, tells me he's assigned me to the traumatic brain injury clinic, and I'll start there in January. He describes the job. I won't have residents. I'll have to examine these uh, uh, patients, take uh, do their primary care. And I come home, tell Jack, and she goes, there's no way you can do that job physically. And it's like, yep, I, I know. Um, and so in January, I'll go and either I can do it or I can't. And then we have to apply for medical disability. I am bummed. It's like, okay, I'm finally going to have to take that disability. Two weeks later, uh, in the packet that I'm reviewing for um, uh, research is a study in the spinal cord injury using electrical stimulation of muscles. And I think, wow. I wonder if that would help me. Uh, so I do a quick search, find um, 212 abstracts. doesn't take long to read them all. And then uh, there's just a handful that are for cerebral palsy uh, patients. 
I, and so I asked my physical therapist uh, if I can have a test session. He says, well, it's for athletes. Uh, it's really quite painful. You have a lot of pain. Uh, I can probably grow bigger muscles, but I don't know that your brain can talk to those muscles. I might be making you worse. But I convinced him to give me a test session. It hurts like hell. <laughs> but when it's over, I feel great. It's the best I've felt in years. And Dave says, you know, I, I think it's the endorphins. So we add E-STEM to physical therapy. Like to, to all your muscles or what were you well, doing? Well, we, like... we did it uh, to my abdomen uh, and my back and my butt muscles. Okay. So three, three muscle groups. Yeah, especially sitting sitting down all day in a wheelchair, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Trying to support the core was important. Try, trying to support the core because yep. I can't. Yeah, it's I, it's really hard to sit up. I I can sit in a desk chair for uh, ten minutes. Otherwise, I'm in a zero gravity chair. You know, with my knees higher than my nose. Wow, not using any basically not using any muscles not at all. So at so all. the atrophy so is going to be terrible. Right. Right. So I remember I, I cannot sit up more than 10 minutes. I have, uh, I can do a mat exercise about 10 minutes. If I do longer than 10 minutes, I can't go to work. So I, I'm in a really pretty terrible shape. I begin to have brain fog, which is why John had called me and said, Terry, you're going to go to this new job. And he's probably doing that to, to force me into medical retirement. That's what I was asking. Do you think that yeah. was his intention? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what that, that's, you know, and he was right. Was he, was, he was absolutely right. There's no criticism of John for, for doing that. Uh, and so I've, I've discovered this E-STEM. I've started doing E-STEM. Uh, and I think I'm uh, maybe uh, three or four weeks into that. And then I stumble on the Institute for Functional Medicine's website and the course they have on neuroprotection. They've got uh, faculty, uh, 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 Jay Lombard, Catherine Wolner are the faculty. Uh, uh, they've got good credentials. I order the course, a big casebook, uh, audio synchronized uh, PowerPoints, and a lot of mitochondria stuff, a lot of biochemistry. Uh, I'm really thrilled with it. Uh, it's a lot. That I'm dealing with with my, um, you know, brain fog. Uh, I have a longer list of supplements. I add those, and then and now in retrospect, Nathan, it's embarrassing how how long this came. But I I suddenly had this aha. Like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet based on this long list of supplements I'm taking, and I figure out where they are in the food supply, because then I'll probably get other things that are good for me as well, because, you know, I'd been meticulously following the um, paleo diet, you know, no grain, no legumes, uh, uh, no dairy. So it's you know, clearly gluten-free, dairy-free. Um, but now I, I'm much more sp specific uh, where these things are in the food supply. That's a few more months of research. And I start this new way of eating December 26th. 2007? 2007. January 2nd, I go to the Brainjury Clinic. The first two weeks, I am watching my my new partners uh, do the exams. I'm like, okay, I should be able to do that. The third week in January, 
I start uh, in, now I have to examine the patients, write the notes. At the end of the first day, it's okay. At the end of the first week I'm doing this, Jack, I, I tell Jack, like, you know, I think I can do this. This really wasn't too bad. And then at the end of the month, I tell Jackie, you know, I, I'd i like to sit in a regular chair for supper. And we, so we, we I have supper in, in a regular chair at, at, and that doesn't sound like a big thing, but it really is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, and then it, in February, it, it's clear that my pain is less, my mental clarity is better, and my fatigue is gone. And I'm not sleeping at night, and I realize I, I just I can't sleep. And Jackie says, "Stop your provigil." So we stop my provigil. I can sleep. I, I've been taking provigil because of the fatigue. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't need that anymore. I and then I um, and this is radical. I I have a a, a letter that I, I want to mail, uh, and instead of going down in my wheelchair, I I, I have walking sticks in my office, and I walk to go mail the letter uh, down the hall. And people are like, oh my God, Dr. Wallace, you, you're walking. And they haven't seen me walk at the hospital, you know, in about four years. And, you know, my physical therapist says, you know, you're definitely stronger. He advances my exercises. I'm adding more E-STEM. I can exercise now twice a day. Uh, and I, they says, you know, it's 45 minutes of E-STEM to each muscle group will, will grow the muscles. And you can stimulate as many muscles as you have time to stimulate. So then I'm like, well, I'm working full time, so I gotta start doing this at work. So I take my, and it's a, a pocket device so I can take it and I'm stimulating my muscles at work. I'm doing isometric contractions and I'm doing the current at a level that I can tolerate, so I'm not grimacing or grunting. I can still have a conversation, uh, and so I'm I'm gradually increasing my uh, exercise, my e-stem uh, throughout the day. And then in May, I uh, it's a Mother's Day. I I tell Jackie that I want to try riding my bike. And I haven't done that in six years. So we have an emergency family meeting. She tells my son, who is six foot five, he's 16 years old, uh, you know, big athletic guy. Uh, my daughter, who's 13, she'll tell Zach, you run on the left. Zeb, you jog along on the right and she'll follow. So we all get in a position uh, and the snow car is coming so I, I can push off. The bike wobbles just for a bit, I, but I catch my balance and I bike around the block. I, my my six-year-old boy, he's cried. Zebby's cried. Jackie's cried. And I cry still talking about that. Because, you see, Nathan, that 
is when I understood that the current understanding of progressive multiple sclerosis is incomplete. And who knew how much recovery might be possible? So after that, <clears throat> I kept biking a little bit more every day. Yeah, and in October, Jackie signs me up for the Courage Ride, 18.5 miles. And, you know, at that point, the longest I'd, I'd biked was eight miles, so this was a, a pretty big jump. But when I finished that and across the finish line, you know, my kids are crying, Jackie's crying, and I'm crying again. And that fundamentally changes how I think about disease and health, the way I practice medicine, and the focus of my research. Did you did you shed a tear there too, Nathan? You're, you're making me cry over here. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just like it's like um, in my case, you know, the the simple joy of teaching a child how to ride a bike. This is kind of where my my mind went to was like, here you are reclaiming your life again, as if you know a parent teaching their child how to ride a bike, and here's your children helping you you know, to ride a bike again uh, in your later years in life. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, it's so incredible and so inspiring. And um, I can only imagine for you what it must have, you know, what it must have been like to to have that opportunity back to say, hey, actually, you know what? Something's working here. I'm reclaiming my health. I'm feeling better. I'm, you know, having hope again probably for the first time in yeah. who knows how many years. Um it's how Six. incredible that is. <laughs> yeah. So what what were the big changes? And we can get into the Walls Protocol a bit yeah. um, because I know, you know, the book you've written about this and the work, a couple of books, a few books you've written about this, uh, that go into depth into what you've later come to, you know, uh, call and design the Walls Protocol, um, which goes into depth of like all the things you've done, the diet, lifestyle changes, all of that. But I want to get into some of that. What were some of those big changes that, that you made in the diet that you started to see some, some huge results in such a, you know, just a few months really? You know, uh, so I had already adopted the paleo diet uh, in 2002. <clears throat> so I'd done that for five years. But the paleo diet uh, really focuses on what to remove it was when I was focused on what to add. I, in the big changes, I ate a huge amount of green leafy vegetables, uh, kale, collards, um, uh, spinach, uh, romaine lettuce, uh, parsley, cilantro. Uh, I had more cabbage, onion, uh, mushroom uh, vegetables. Uh, I had more beets, carrots, uh, berries. And uh, it was really interesting. So I, I, I'm recovering, and I'm like, I, I could go to scientific meetings again. So I'm going to scientific meetings, presenting our research. And what I discovered is if I couldn't eat the huge volume of greens that I had been consuming, my mental clarity would begin to falter at 36 hours. Mm. I thought, wow, that was really interesting. Now, are you um, eating these mostly raw, mostly cooked, both? Uh, I would say it was uh, probably 50-50. Okay. So then I learned that I had to travel 
with uh, uh, a head of cabbage and I traveled with powdered greens um, so I could keep up my vegetable intake. I also w went back to eating liver uh, every week and, and, and heart, uh, gizzards, uh, tongue. Uh, you know, I was having more oysters, uh, mussels, uh, clams. Uh, and I'd made the decision if it wasn't organic, I'm not eating it. Uh, um, I, I was uh, adding uh, fermented foods. Uh, I was having a lot of nutritional yeast as well. Uh, and, and, you know, I had these lists of foods that I needed to be consuming when I decided and I started talking to my my veteran patients about diet and lifestyle. It's like, okay, I, I only have a few minutes with these vets. I need to have a an easy way to teach them how to, so when they, when they go home, they could remember. Uh, and that caused me to think a lot about what are some of the food rules I could use to get people to uh, be successful with copying what I've done and to get the nutrients that I wanted to be sure that people had. Uh, and that's how uh, over a period of about a year, the Walls Protocol was born with the three cups of greens, the three cups of sulfur-rich, cabbage, onion, mushroom, family vegetables, three cups of deeply colored uh, beets, carrots, uh, berries. Uh, and um, I... <clears throat> I recognize that some people are, are deeply committed to being vegetarian or vegan. So we, we talked about if uh, that's where people were coming from, how to make that, um, give that as an option and to give them structure so they could be more successful. Uh, but I also um, uh, created a protocol that's more, more clearly for the omnivore. Uh, I call that uh, the Walls Paleo. There we talk about the benefits of organ meats. Uh, uh, and uh, wild fish, grass-finished meats. Uh, we talked about fermented foods for everyone, some seaweed for everyone, uh, and if you are going to have nuts and seeds to uh, soak and germinate them. Uh, and then we talked about a, a lower carbohydrate version uh, that is more ketogenic. Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love Healing Life. At HealingLife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at HealingLife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net, and I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. 
Now it makes so, sense. I think what you did was I want to highlight something you did um, because because a lot of people in the holistic health space, people who uh, anyone who starts to go down a more natural path, can get into this kind of trap, this same trap that we have fallen into, unfortunately, with the you know kind of conventional medical model, which is you know let's get very myopic into one molecule or one particle or one thing and, mm-hmm. and attack that one thing with one drug or this or that, right? Like one organ or what, instead of looking at the entire system and in supplements, uh, we can do the same thing, right? Where it's like, yeah. well, we take this supplement for this problem and this supplement for this problem, this supplement, and it doesn't exactly work that way because we have all these very complex, interconnected, integrative, you know, biological, physiological systems that are all dependent and work not only synergistically and harmoniously together, but need multiple sources of input for them to work properly. And mm-hmm. so I think what you did was really fascinating and incredibly intelligent, which was, all right, I'm taking these supplements that have all these different nutrients in them that uh, have shown to see some benefit clinically. But why don't I go to the source, right? Why don't I go to the source of where these nutrients come from, which is, which led you obviously to the greens, the vegetables, the dark leafy greens, you know, the cruciferous vegetables, the brassicas, the, you know, highly nutrient dense, lots of minerals, lots of vitamins, you know, obviously the, the, um, anti-cancer molecules, the, uh, or the anti-cancer effect, I should say with the sulforaphanes and, you know, so many benefits from all of these vegetables, dark leafy, uh, dark leafy greens and the berries as well, which we know are incredible for brain function, neurological function, immune Mm -hmm. system. Right. So going to the source and maybe talk a little bit about that, why it is so important to have these whole foods, real foods in your diet um, significantly. There's nothing wrong with supplements, but supplements are meant to supplement. Right. Yeah. Like supplements like should be 10 percent or 20 percent of what you're doing. The 80% plus should be coming from real whole food because you'll never get even if a supplement says 350 percent RDA of vitamin K like yeah, but you know that has been processed and it yeah. has been taken out from its original source, and you don't get the fiber with it, and it's basically not a living thing any longer. Like you know, the energy of it as well. If you want to look at energy, the energy of a living plant versus something that's processed and turned into you know, you can measure these things. You know, the energy isn't there, and we are energetic beings, right? So, um, yeah, talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, you know, our, our uh, vitamins. Uh, that were first identified as critical for health uh, were based on technologies that were available uh, basically a hundred years ago. Uh, and we now have technologies that allow us to analyze uh, the changes in metabolites of uh, about 6,000 different compounds uh, as we're trying to understand how the fluctuations uh, of these metabolites in our bloodstream are associated with improving health or declining health. And um, we, we have much greater appreciation that it's the food that you and I eat that is then acted upon by the bacteria that uh, and other microbes that live in our guts that then these compounds are absorbed into our bloodstream where they go to the liver. And if you have a healthy liver, the liver will say, Yep, these are the good ones. We're going to hang on to those. And these are the ones that are a problem. We're going to take those out. We'll put them in the bile and dump them out. Uh, And that 
it's that rich uh, biochemistry that that we can have from the food we eat and uh, how the microbial action on that food that allow us to make all of those biochemical reactions that we need to keep life going. Um, it's a very complicated process. In every one of our cells, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening every second that are cycling uh, back and forth. It's like sort of a, a yin and yang. You may be able to keep me alive sort of with just um, uh, total parental nutrition with vitamins, minerals, but I'm not going to thrive. If I'm going to thrive, I need to be able to do uh, that rich biochemistry. In order to do that rich biochemistry, I have to have a, a rich, diverse set of inputs. And so this is where uh, I, I, having more food that's real food, as opposed to food that has been processed, where we've had a lot of emulsifiers, uh, surfactants, compounds put into the food to make the food uh, have a, quote, nice mouth appeal or a long shelf life, or that has additives that are stimulants to my brain to uh, increase my dopamine, create craving so that if I'm not taking that processed food on a regular basis, I have craving and withdrawal. Uh, you know, and um, you can think of uh, big tobacco. Uh, they were very good at learning how to manipulate their product to create craving, addiction, uh, independence. Those scientists were purchased, bought up by the big food company. And the big food companies take the food scientists, those young, hardworking PhDs, uh, and instead of going into academia, they go into the big food industry and they can use their scientific knowledge to create more food-like molecules that will be uh, stimulating to my brain, enhancing my pleasure, enhancing my dependence and craving, which is why the processed foods have become so addictive. And I would also add that we've allowed these food companies to target our children and make our children uh, dependent on these compounds that are, are starving them for nutrition, but making them loyal customers for a product that will destroy their health uh, as young people and as adults. Well, now we see just about every chronic disease on the planet skyrocketing in children yes. at younger ages than ever before. I mean, cancer's at the number one cause of death in children now, aside from childhood accidents, I believe, which is crazy. Children never used to have cancer. And now, you know, children are dying from cancer every day, autoimmune disease, diabetes, and, and autoimmune disease obesity, uh, right? Anxiety, like, depression, rage. Um, it's it's great, and these foods are as addictive as drugs. And they, if you can imagine, like when you go to to any fast food restaurant, for example, and you go, oh my god, that tastes so good, and it's you know, oh, I love that hamburger, that cheeseburger and fries or whatever it is. And you go to that fast food restaurant, and it's like you you feel so you know you're like, oh, I can't wait to go get my 
my my burger and fries. Yeah. What what has happened for you to to feel that way? There's as you were just talking about. There's literally a room of scientists sitting around saying, "How do we get the perfect formulation of sugar, sweet, you know, a sweet flavor, a salty flavor, oils? How do we get this perfect formula to make the consumer as addictive as possible, addicted to our food as possible?" So they come back and they want more, and they want a second one. They got to eat there three times a day, four times a day. This is literally what they're getting paid. To do. to do. This is their job. And, it, you know, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying this is what's going on behind the scenes that a lot of people aren't aware of. And it's true in the in the um, processed food that you buy in packages, the sweets, the candy bars. The, they all have these food scientists and they're putting millions and millions and millions of dollars into this research to make you as addicted as possible to these foods that we know are contributing to massive proliferation of chronic disease on the planet. And, and I'm holding up my phone because we have a similar group of scientists who are superb at um, creating um, uh, pleasure enhancers in social media, in our apps, uh, and uh, video gaming, uh, so that our children, our young adults, uh, and uh, adults are getting addicted to uh, gambling to pornography towards uh, social media, uh, and we are uh, destroying our our society uh, uh, because these things are not regulated; <clears throat> they're not controlled. You know, we've had controls on tobacco consumption, we've had controls on alcohol consumption. You know, and, and one of the things that I would um, uh, love to do is to have these compounds that we know that are accelerating chronic disease, uh, accelerating sedentary behavior, have to pay for the diseases that they're uh, contributing to. Uh, 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 it's complicated. and Unfortunately, we've created a political system that uh, has uh, diminished the power of individuals and amplified the powers of corporations I, and I, I don't. That, that's a separate conversation about how our society will resolve uh, those tensions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fascinating thought, right? Thought experiment. If you create a product that is a known carcinogen, processed meats, known carcinogens, right? They contribute to cancer. If you create and sell a product, you know, cigarettes, alcohol, whatever it is, known carcinogens contribute to cancer. Then you know you are taxed a a health tax. Let's call it a health tax, right? Like yeah. you are depleted. You are helping people get addicted to these things that cause disease, which is very not, not only disruptive to their life and ends their lives early and creates a lot of pain and suffering, but also their children, their family, and the entire community because we all pay for it together. We, we pay, for, pay for it together. through healthcare, through sickness, through you know. Uh, uh, bad political decisions, like all these things are relevant. And so, you know, is a tax enough to, to reduce or, you know, yeah. do, and then do you, and then you cross in the line of, well, you know, now we're, you know, know of choice and all of that. But I think at the very least, you know, educating people about this as, as you do, as I do, as, mm -hmm. as many of our colleagues do, I think that's number one, educating ourselves. But then number two is like, Maybe like the cigarette companies had to do, you know, these cigarettes can cause cancer, like right on the package. Yeah. You know, maybe that would help. 
But people still it, smoke it, cigarettes, but I think a lot less than before, right? Less than before. And we can think about when in the 60s and 70s, uh, in early 80s, uh, if you went to a bar, there was uh, tobacco everywhere. Uh, and when I grew up, uh, seatbelts uh, in cars were very rare. Uh, and when I grew up, people didn't wear bike helmets. But society evolved, uh, and we did uh, gradually restrict uh, tobacco use uh, and uh, into fewer uh, locations, and the harms of secondhand smoke uh, became known. Uh, uh, and cars were designed for safety, so now we have seat belts uh, and uh, airbags uh, and helmets on uh, uh, wearing bikes uh, has become a thing. So uh, it is possible that we can make societal decisions that will uh, find a way to make it more attractive to do the right thing. Mm. Will we restrict marketing to children? Will we uh, decrease uh, subsidies uh, to wheat, corn, soybeans, uh, increase subsidies uh, to vegetables? Uh, uh, organic, you know, organic farms as well instead of the conventional GMO, highly pesticide, highly chemicalized so, farms. I mean, just uh, doing that. And, I mean, just switching, you know, the subsidies from you know the GMO, highly pesticide crops to organic farms could make a huge difference. Or, or even just taking away the, the subsidies. Just take them away. Yeah, you don't even have yeah, to switch uh, them. Just you know, take just, them away. You could just <laughs> exactly. uh, take them away. Um, uh, you could look at growing protein lower down the food chain. Um, well, and, I, and some I, people say, well, what about the farmer? Well, well, unfortunately today, most of the small farms have gone away and they've been yeah, taken over killed. by these massive, massive corporate conglomerations anyway, number one, yes. who, who just rape the land, you know, destroying the fertile soil, putting so many chemicals on it and killing all the diversity, the biodiversity. And two, the small farmers who are still there trying to make a living. Yes, if you took away their subsidies, well, they wouldn't make a living. But what's very fascinating is there are farmers who are being educated in this regard, who are switching to organic farms, getting out of those monocrop, highly chemicalized, pesticide, fertilized uh, uh, crops. And they are not only seeing uh, better overall crop production within a couple of years, but they're actually making more money because yeah. they have, because they're not just dependent on the corn or the soy or, you know, the wheat, which is primarily going to animal feed anyway. There are more, uh, there's a much more rapid growth of farms uh, under 25 acres yeah. that are these uh, small intensive farms. Well, you have uh, one yourself, 25 right? Acres. Uh, well, um, well, I have a tree farm. Uh, so we're, we're still farming. Uh, we are uh, farming walnuts uh, and, and oak trees. Nice. But there are, there's been a much more rapid expansion of these small farms uh, and, and farms that are an acre, a half acre, uh, that are this very intensive farming. And there are an explosion of farms uh, in the urban setting. Uh, there's an interesting uh, farmer here in Iowa who's growing crickets. Uh, and crickets as a source of fiber uh, and of protein. That if we reimagine our farms uh, as urban farms, uh, I think uh, growing your protein lower down on the food chain 
will probably be uh, in the end more profitable uh, and less ecologically uh, taxing on the planet. So I, I think there's some very interesting innovations happening uh, in the uh, farming world. Uh, I also see the regenerative farmers that are uh, recycling uh, chicken uh, and uh, cattle uh, and uh, have this intensive foraging that is uh, being rotated through the soil areas uh, and rapidly improving the fertility of that soil. Yeah. When you go, so and I find, I love that. Well, yeah, I mean, and I've been, I I've been primarily whole food plant based, like primarily vegan in my diet for over a decade. And even when I did my deep research and documentary series on sustainability, there are some vegans who say, "Oh no, you got to stop all animals on the land," and da da da. And it's like it's one of the dumbest things you could ever say. Like, yeah, if you actually take care of animals properly on the land and, and they're rotating, they're able to move around like animals on, you know, any kind of animal on the land for the most part, as long as they're not overgrazing is, is essential to the regeneration and health of that land. They fertilize Absolutely. the land, they move seed around, they take down invasive species, they'll eat it, right? They'll, I mean, they yeah, help this, this, animals the, on the land are, are, are meant bro- to be on the land. Look what happened to Yellowstone when they, took the wolves out, right? People say, oh, I got to get rid of the wolves. And then what? You know, and then the deer and elk yeah. population overtake the place and start destroying the wildlife. They go, oh, we got to put the wolves back in. Well, yeah, don't you think? You yeah. know, they're, they're yeah. essential. The carnivores are an essential part of the natural cycle of herbivores, carnivores, omnivores. We need all of that in nature working harmoniously, you know, for the planet yeah. to be able to regenerate. And you take any one of those out, and put the it's other one in excess, it's going to be a big problem. Yeah, the regenerative farmers do a, a lovely job of yeah. um, intensively grazing and then rotating. And yeah. so you have intensive fertilization of the soil and you rotate. And t- so you need all of that manure. Yeah. Um, I grew up, we understood manure was vital towards uh, improving the fertility of the land, of the soil. Uh, and so I'm sure, you know, my father, grandfathers, grandmothers, uh, all down the ancestral farming line are thrilled that I talk so fondly of manure, uh, of the <laughs> microbiome, of uh, how that is an essential part of restoring the health of the soil, the health of the individual, and the health of us. Yeah. I want to show... Uh, a picture from your website really quick so people can see what, what we've been talking about. People who are watching this, anyway, if you're listening, um, I'll describe it, but those who are watching, you can see a picture. This is, uh, or you can go see it at terrywalls.com. Basically, this is Terry. Can you see this? Oh, yeah. This is Terry in a, in a wheelchair, as we've been talking about. This is October 1st, 2007, right? And this is when you were really... Probably at your worst, I, would you say? That, yeah, that was uh, my worst. Still trying to basically survive, and 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 at the you know headed yeah. downward spiral, and potentially heading towards you know medical disability and all the terrible things that were to come. And then here, this is one year later. So you had changed your diet. You were starting to be able to. Here you are, one year later, October first, two thousand eight. Looking healthy, smiling, vibrant on a bicycle. Like, how amazing is that? That's incredible. Yeah, that was, that's that's the bike uh, that went eighteen point five miles. Mm. 
And so in one year, you were able to, um, I mean, tell us, okay, so that one-year period or after one year, uh, what were all the things you did? Your diet, obviously, you already talked about. So, you were so starting we, to do more exercise, more e-stim. So uh, more... I, I was progressively uh, doing exercise and e-stim, and I had um, I was seeing my physical therapist, um, you know, three days a week, and I had done that uh, for four years, literally. Uh, uh, so that was uh, uh, huge. I paid attention to meditation again. I had done transcendental meditation for years during medical mm. school. I quit. I have no idea why I quit. <laughs> uh, and then, um, you know, when I was diagnosed with MS and I knew that stress uh, uh, made my face pain worse, I have no idea why I did not go back to meditating then. It's like, oh, my God, I, I clearly should have. Um, could, could it have been that and a, lot of, a lot of medical doctors I've talked to over the years who have become, you know, trained functionally or holistic medical doctors later on, you know, talk about the um, kind of the, the the taboo or there's a better word I'm thinking of. It's tip my tongue, but as a, as a medical doctor, you know, even talking about natural alternatives well, or therapies, you can be considered a quack in your you know around your colleagues and so forth. Was it was there it, some of that? Was that like meditation was just like it was so taboo? It was just like well, whatever. You know, I, I think it was uh, that I was busy. There's only so many hours in the day, and uh, I I quit during medical school and training because I I didn't have enough time to do everything else, and mm. I didn't want to stop running. So mm. it's like, okay, I I got more fun out of run than uh, out of meditating, so I kept that part going. Yeah. Um, and then as I could do less and less. Uh, the demand for my time, you know, that sense of time pressure uh, was still uh, very keen. So, so anyway, uh, it's meditation. Uh, it's um, aware that I should. Uh, for a long time, I thought getting four to six hours of sleep a night was an advantage because I had, you know, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to do, and I began to realize that no, 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 I should try to get seven to nine hours. So I would stay in bed and I would meditate rather than get out of bed. So uh, attending to sleep, uh, meditating, the exercise, the e-stem. And I would keep let everyone know that as a uh, prior athlete, I understood the importance of training. Uh, my The physical therapist that I saw I treated athletes, he treated me like he did the other athletes, you know, we laid out a training plan uh, and I uh, did that. And then because I'm sort of an intense person, I trained a lot more than what he told me uh, I could. Uh, and so I basically was training in some capacity from the moment I woke up to the moment that I went to bed. And, and keep in mind, Nathan, I was doing this not to recover because I had been taught uh, one, that once you hit the secondary progressive phase of multiple sclerosis, that functions once lost do not come back. And that I was doing all of this to keep the things that I still had a bit longer. Because I, the, the trajectory I had seen was I have a progressive disease that – 
is progressing. My pain is progressing. My weakness is progressing. My hands still work. So I could still feed myself, dress myself, you know, wipe my own butt. That was worth a lot. I wanted to keep that going as long mm -hmm. as I could. I could still walk around in my house with my walking sticks. Although Jack and I were talking about the fact I'd have to bring a scooter in the house because we weren't sure how much longer I'd be able to keep walking uh, around the house with the walking sticks. And that's where I was at in 2007. So wow. as I was recovering, so I'm walking with my walking sticks around the hospital. I'm walking with my walking sticks around the block, then with one, then with none. One of the things that happens when you have a progressive disease or a progressive neurologic disease is as you come to terms with the fact, okay, I've got a progressive disease. It's going to get worse every day. I don't know where it's going to end or how, how bad it's going to be. I'm going to let go of the future. I will stop imagining my future. I will just live for today. And today will be whatever it's going to be. So I am remarkably better, but I've let go of the future. So each day I, I, I can get up. I can walk around. Today's a good day. I don't know what any of this means. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know what, and I, I have let, let go of my future. It was the day, and so I, I did all of that. I was, I was training from the moment I got up. And, and, and only an athlete would do shit like that. Right. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I can 100% relate. <laughs> so, so, I I am meditating, I am visualizing, I'm doing my e-stem, I'm doing my physical therapy, and I'm doing that while I work, mind you. So I have to work, uh, and I, I'm sort of multitasking. Uh, you know, I come home, have supper, and I do, you know, my, now I get to do my exercise, I, you know, um, uh, do my exercise with my e-stem uh, and I'm uh, meditating and visualizing. Th this, this is an all-out effort because mm. Mm. I just want to hang on to what I got. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not, what you're talking about is not easy. Like, none of this was easy for you, right? None of this was, was easy. I mean, you're talking about challenging things. Like, most people that I see today are, they know they should do all these things you're talking about, but it's a little hard, so they'd rather sit on the couch and watch TV at night. Yeah. It, it, instead, they should be doing some physical therapy or meditating or walking around the block or doing doing it, these things. It's like, well, that's too hard, so I'm going to sit here and hope that things get better on their own, which they never will get better on their own. It just doesn't happen. We have to take action. To do we, we have to take action. So people say like, so that that was such a dramatic recovery that you you got in one year. No one else has done that. Well, you're like, yeah, I was busting my ass. I've worked for it <laughs> every day. I worked day. incredibly hard. Uh, I mean, in, incredibly hard. You know, basically all of my waking hours uh, uh, for four years, by the way. Yeah. Wow. Um, but th that level of recovery uh, happened, um, and I, I, I certainly can't imagine that there'll be many people willing to put that level of intensity 
um, uh, that I did. Um, however, I, I will say that in my clinical practice, we do work with people who are willing to work really, really hard. And the people who I see who are most successful um, are former athletes um, because they're like, okay, give me a training program and we will work with them on here are the elements uh, of the training that you're going to do. And um, we have to, with my former athletes, and I had to go through this too, is uh, there is, you have to work closely with a, um, a physical therapist who understands this to pace the training so you don't overtrain. Exactly. So there, there's a training schedule, uh, recovery time, uh, and what's going, what exercises you're going to do. I worked very, very closely with a physical therapist who, tra- who trained athletes. Uh, and, and that was sort of an interesting challenge for him because he, uh, so I have a profound disability, uh, and, um, but I, I was willing. And so we de- devi- he devised this program that I faithfully did. Uh, so saw him three days a week. Uh, um, uh, and sometimes I would go back to their facility in the other two days. So I, I could be there uh, five days a week. Uh, it, it was enormously intense. We have had other people who are wheelchair dependent get back to walking. Uh, there's this uh, lovely, um, very inspiring story, uh, a woman whose son was getting married. She wanted to be able to walk him down the aisle. She's wheelchair dependent. Um, we start working with her. Uh, uh, we have a physical therapist and e-stem uh, going. She is able to walk him down the aisle. She's able to dance with him at the mother-son uh, dance uh, in the wedding. Now, mind you, she couldn't walk independently yet. So she was walking uh, with her son, her husband's on the other arm. She's thrilled. Um, and she's dancing with her son. She couldn't dance independently, but she can dance uh, beautifully with her son. Uh, and uh, she was a Division One athlete mm. who was willing to do a couple hours uh, every day for a couple of years to get to that goal from wheelchair dependents, unable to take even a few steps to walking and dancing in two years. That's such a great, you know, for anyone who has any athletic background, I mean, if you played soccer when you were 10, right, it's may not be as much of a a mental kind of uh, pullback, but, but you can find some way to tap into that when it comes to healing and say, look, how do I approach this like training? How do I approach this? Yes. Like tra- this is Elaine Gibson, a good friend of mine. She's in her 70s now. Uh, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. The doctor told her, hey, you will not see your grandchildren grow up. I mean, what a terrible, terrible thing to be told, right? But she was a former athlete, and she had already been on a health journey, a health path, had been learning about you know juicing and, and a healthy diet and exercising, all these kinds of things, meditation. And so she told me, she said, look, I just, I went training and I started meditating an hour every morning and green juice every day and whole food, you know, raw plant-based diet and exercise and sauna and detoxification, removing all the chemicals in my house and meditating another hour every night. And it was just like, she looked at it as training, 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 training for what? Training to, to achieve your goal. What's your goal? And in her case was, was to be healthy, to outlive that fake, you know, um, 
uh, expiration date, as I call it, that prognosis. <laughs> and and not only did she do that, but she was able to to completely reverse stage four cancer uh, in a very holistic way. And so, you know, that's such a great uh, great mindset tool you can use if you're a former athlete. Would you say? What would you say aside from that, approaching like training, did you have a deeper reason to live, a deeper reason to commit to the training? Did you have something that, that uh, something that was really pulling you forward well, to, to go through all that hard work? Yeah. Uh, and was it Jackie? My, you say it was Jackie? my uh, veterans taught me this one is you really need to know your why. Yeah. Um, and uh, Zach and Zab, my two kids uh, and Jackie, um, I was not going to be a burden. I wanted to be part of their lives. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, so I was doing all of that because uh, I didn't want to be a burden and I wanted to be part of their lives. And then, you know, when I got on my bikes, like, yeah, I could really be part of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I, and uh, what I want everyone who's listening to know is, you know, I, I jog in the neighborhood now. Let me repeat that. I jog in the neighborhood now. Uh, I'm not fast. I don't go really far. The longest, the farthest I've gone is two and a half miles. Uh, but in 2007, I could not sit up at at I, I could not sit up at uh, at a table to eat. I could sit up for 10 minutes, wow. um, and that would meet the definition of being bedridden, which is like, oh my God. Uh, fortunately, I didn't appreciate that at the time. Uh, I could still walk a few steps uh, with uh, my walking sticks. Uh, we hadn't yet put the scooter in the house, but we were talking about uh, the fact that uh, we would probably have to do that. And was that going to, um, what doorways were going to have to be uh, uh, redone? So, do you still have some symptoms today of uh, of either the neuralgia yeah. or the MS? So, if I um, come to your home, Nathan, and you accidentally give me gluten, dairy, or eggs in six to eight hours, uh, I'll have the trigeminal neuralgia. Wow. Um, if uh, my physical therapist does uh, a strength assessment. Uh, they will find that my glute medius on my left leg is slightly weak compared to my right leg. Um, and I, actually, I just had saw my physical therapist uh, a couple months ago. So uh, that was the only weakness. She said, you know, and I'm not even sure if I would have detected that if I didn't know that you've told me in the past that your left leg is weak. Well, um, most people have some kind of slight imbalance in one part of their body or another. So... I don't know if I would count that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so when I saw my neurologist uh, and she's doing the strength assessment, I said, okay, how about I do a few push-ups for you? She goes, what? So um, I, I did 12 push-ups. She's like, well, uh, that's pretty good. So I said, okay, so how about uh, I'll stand on, on one leg? So I did that for one minute and I did the other leg for one minute. She goes, okay, no, no, that's fine. We, we, we're good here. You, you, you are uh, better than uh, 67-year-olds uh, who are healthy. Wow. Wow. So I, I think you, you are uh, clearly very healthy. Um, now, if you, if you do my MRIs, so I have these old lesions in my, in my brain, uh, and, yep, still have them. Um, uh, they continue to get a little bit smaller. Uh, my neurologist is, is very clear to say, 
what matters is the rewiring. And clearly you have rewired uh, your brain uh, so that you have very, very few, if any, functional limitations. And uh, the MRI is helpful to say, yep, you got new lesions that are asymptomatic. We should be worried about you. But you don't have any new lesions. You have great function. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll do a surveillance MRI every couple of years. Uh, and the reports keep getting better over time. This is incredible because, I mean, according to conventional medical science today, MS is an incurable disease. And, you know, I mean, you have basically regressed it to the point of living an incredibly healthy, Uh, vibrant life, vibrant life. You know, I mean, some would say that's cured. I mean, it's incredible. Well, you know, I'm very careful to not claim cure. Uh, It's very well managed. It's regressed. Um, If I ever went back to my previous diet, I, you know, uh, if I went back to um, whole wheat bread, which was quite delicious, <laughs> I would have incapacitating pain. Mm-hmm. If I uh, went back to eating uh, eggs, I, uh, which are also quite delicious, incapacitating pain. Um, if I went back to uh, my yogurts or cheeses, I'd have incapacitating pain. I mean, three, so three, three main things that you have found that trigger the neuralgia. Now, what if, have you thought, I'm sure you thought about this. If you knew that 20 years prior, could you have, you know, reduced all that? Pain? Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm actually talking with a, another neuroscientist uh, about uh, the goal of preventing uh, MS would be to identify people who are in that prodrome state and I had been clearing that prodrome straight for 20 years before my diagnosis. And had I known, and I could have stopped the gluten, dairy, and eggs, I probably would have never had MS, and my yeah. trigeminal neurology would have been uh, manageable. Um, you also on the other hand, have, you wouldn't have developed. No, go ahead. I, I'm really grateful that I have trigeminal neurology. Mm. Um, one, uh, it allowed me to uh, discover the Walls protocol, uh, and. Uh, I'm able to uh, craft a message that has reached millions uh, uh, around the globe and uh, probably hundreds of thousands of practitioners. And I have this amazing biosensor, Nathan. I know moment to moment, uh, is my central nervous system happy, calm, repairing itself, or is it pissed off and attacking me? So if I have no pain if the sensation in my face is normal, I know that my microglia are happy and my oligodendrocytes are repairing my myelin. Good things. If the sensation in my face begins to be a little off, I know that something triggered my microglia to be unhappy, and i got to figure out what that is. Uh, and so that's allowed me to be very attentive to my self-care routine very attentive to what I eat. And so if somebody invites me for a meal, I will tell them, look, I'll bring the food. If you want to um, cook something, you have to read all the labels because if you have gluten, dairy, or eggs, I will have, I'll be incapacitated with pain. And that will happen in about six hours. So, 
So if you if you still want to risk cooking for me, uh, we have to talk about that. But I'm happy to bring the food, and so you don't have to have any stress. Yeah, it's just some of those some of those changes that you know you you learn to deal with as you as you get healthier and learn to avoid certain things. When we travel as a family, my wife, I, and my kids, we've been doing this for over a decade. We pretty much bring our own food. Uh, wherever we go, we have a cooler and bags full of food. And when we get somewhere, we're shopping, we're cooking ourselves, we do eat out, but it's, and I'm a little, you know, I don't have to worry about that as much. Um, even though now I, I, I think I've discovered a corn allergy that has been plaguing me for many, many years. Um, so that's something that I'm like really, really specific with now, but because we're very particular with our food, organic, whole food, avoiding gluten, you know, uh, corn, dairy, these kinds of things, uh, chemicals, pesticides, like, you know, it, it is a little bit of a challenge as you travel and go out and things like that, but you get used to it and you find ways to do it where you find ways to do it. Mm-hmm. It's not a burden anymore, you know, and now nowadays, because there is such this big push for more healthy options, you can find a lot more healthy it's options when you do travel. It's way easier now than it was 15 years ago, right? So It's so much easier. Yeah. You know, it, the other thing uh, that I do is because I do intermittent um, fasting. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I will fast for one to three, occasionally five days. I can time my uh, travel and my fasting time. If I'm just gone for... 48 hours. I just like, you know what? I'll just do my fast during that time period. It's, it's no big deal nice. at all. Then. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and the more you do it, the more you get used to it. And it's like, it's not, you know, it's not so challenging the more often you do it and actually you start to feel good. And so, um, that's, that's really smart. So, um, it's been wonderful talking with you, Terry. This is, uh, this has been great. Um, Oh, can you. we talk about the clinical trial that we have going? Yeah, and I was going to mention too, you know, um, encourage people to get a copy of of your book, The Walls Protocol. You can get it at terrywalls.com. But I know you do, and I was going to mention that too, that you um, are doing clinical research yeah. on The Walls Protocol, which is awesome. So yeah, talk a little bit about that. So um, we have a, a clinical trial comparing the ketogenic diet uh, the uh, modified paleo elimination diet, uh, which basically uh, is the Wallace elimination diet, uh, to usual diet. Uh, people with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, they come to Iowa City uh, at month zero, month three, and month uh, 24. And we'll look at walking function, uh, vision function, hand function. And we will uh, look at brain volume at the beginning, uh, and at the end of the study, the beauty of um, being able to look at brain volume, one of the hypotheses that I'm going to test, Nathan, uh, has to do with the rate of brain volume loss. Because people with MS, um, our brains are shrinking at a rate uh, three times as fast as occurs in healthy aging. Wow. Which is why we get into problems with anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline at a much earlier age than um, uh, the general public. One of the things that I'm testing is, uh, can we, by teaching people how to have a better diet, get them back to healthy aging? Uh, I'm very hopeful that we can. 
Uh, I think that'll be the most important uh, outcome of the study. The other question, of course, is uh, does improving the diet lead to improved uh, quality of life, reduced fatigue, uh, and better uh, walking and hand function? Uh, if this will be one of the largest and longest dietary intervention studies that have been done in the setting of multiple sclerosis, um, we will enroll 156 people. We have um, at last count 67, uh, which means I have, you know, about uh, 90 that we're still recruiting for. Uh, and we would love to get uh, your audience to come join us and be uh, part of that study. Uh, so you can um, learn more about it at my website, terrywalls.com. There's a gold banner across the front where um, you can click uh, to screen for the study, uh, and then we'll contact you, uh, get the records so that we can confirm the diagnosis and get you enrolled into, into the study. That's awesome. So, so in case someone's listening or watching this, you know, six months or a year, two years later, or whatever it might be. I'm assuming if that gold banner is not at the top that says, you know, we're recruiting patients for the new study, take a survey. If that's gone, I'm assuming that the, you know, you're not recruiting yeah. any further patients. So just so people are aware, but if they yeah, see the banner and on. the button, you know, then screen. And, and probably what will happen, uh, Nathan is because we, we keep writing grants. We have new studies that we'll be doing. Uh, so when we're done with this study, I'm very confident that we'll have more studies uh, that we'll be doing. That's awesome. Uh, because my, my personal goal, Nathan, is you know, I want to still be doing research um, and having postdocs when I'm 80, when I'm 90, when I'm 100, uh, when I'm 120. And I want to be playing uh, uh, chess uh, with my little people in my lives. I want to be playing soccer with the little people in my lives. I want to be gardening uh, and picking berries with the little people and big people in my lives. Uh, so likely we'll keep having banners for whatever study we've got going on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Terrywalls.com. You can also get a copy of her book there. I highly recommend it. Um, she goes into a lot more depth into the Walls protocol. But you just mentioned chess. Uh, I've recently become obsessed with chess. Do you play? Do you play chess often? You know, when my kids are growing up, uh, uh, we played a lot of chess. My daughter learned to play chess at four. Uh, wow. She was beating Jackie at age four. Uh, we, we laugh about that. Uh, I would play Zach and Zeb simultaneously, uh, uh, which kept it you know, pretty even uh, with, with both kids to have me uh, trying to uh, play uh, them simultaneously in that little timer clock. So um, uh, I, I've not been uh, playing competitive chess with them uh, uh, since. Um, but we we do a Scrabble. The, the other thing that we love doing is we've gotten into playing Euchre, uh, and mm. uh, both my kids have made uh, playing cards, uh, um, uh, the women cards. Uh, Zeb, uh, just, her most recent deck is the History Makers. Uh, I've been trying to convince her that she should make a uh, deck of cards, uh, the women in medicine. Ooh. And she told me that, yep, that might be the next deck. And maybe this time, maybe this time 
I would get to be in that deck. So we'll see. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be fun. Uh, are, are you familiar with chess.com, the app? Do you ever use that? I have not. Um, okay. All right. I was going to say, you can play people all over the world. Um, oh, that would be fun. It's really, and it, it kind of uh, scores you next to people that are similar to your ELO rating. And oh, so, that would be fun. Yeah. yeah, you play people that are a little less uh, less as good as you, better than you, right? And so it's really fun. You can play all different can, time yeah. constraints. all. But I was asking because like that's where I've been playing is chess.com and um, – yeah, you can you can play with friends on there too, anywhere just on your phone. It's pretty cool. Uh, and did you enjoy the Queen, so, uh, Queen's Gambit? Yeah, that was a good series. Actually, I thought that was really well done. That, um, that was fun. Yeah, that was really great. Um, we actually, I actually, so I, I first time I played chess, I was a kid, and I just immediately loved it. Like anything. Um, that requires deep thinking. Like mm -hmm. I've always been deeply interested in that. So like I played as a kid a little bit and then off and on over the years. And then I've never gotten serious about it though, until like a couple of months ago, I'm like, I'm actually going to start learning openings and defenses and watching videos on it. For some reason, something just clicked. And I was like, I actually want to, this is fun. I want to really learn this, you know? So it's been fun. Yeah. I think for people who are visual artists, uh, it's very fun, and I think this is probably why uh, my daughter, who's an artist, uh, it was so good at it, uh, because we can visually map things out uh, 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 quickly. I yeah, that's a plan. good point. I'm a very visual person, so that you know, I certainly resonate with that. I also, reasoning. I think what I love about it too is the problem solving. Yep. Like, yep. Right. It's very much problem solving. It's thinking ahead. It's looking at all right, different moves into well, the future. You know, avoiding avoiding challenges and, and solving problems and trying to, you know, achieve a goal. Like I don't look at it as this kind of war and attack to destroy my opponent. Like some people do. I look at it more like, Hey, you know, getting somebody into a checkmate is like, that's a goal. And I use it as a metaphor for life, like my fitness goals, my health goals, my business yeah. goals. Right. And so I'm like, the goal is to get the checkmate. And so how do we find ways creatively and uniquely to, to achieve to that goal, right? So I think it's it's fun it, that it, way. Yeah. This, this is a lovely uh, segue into cognitive training. Mm. Uh, we talked about uh, cognitive decline being uh, a huge risk for people with MS. So what are things that you enjoy that can you can have some problem solving, um, uh, a new skill, uh, whether it is Scrabble or Euchre, uh, uh, Hearts, Crazy Eights, uh, Chess, um, uh, uh, learning a new language or some of the uh, online uh, training programs such as Brain Age, uh, Luminosity. Um, uh, I'd encourage anyone with a neuroimmune condition or a mental health condition uh, to think about um, any of these cognitive training. And it should be fun. You know, well, it, 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 whatever, whatever you're doing should be a lot of fun for you. Uh, and if you can do it as a family, which is uh, when my kids got into playing cards, they're like, okay, so if chess isn't the thing anymore and cards are, that uh, that's fine. And the beauty was uh, it could get the whole family going. So we got both kids uh, and Jackie and I, and um, it was Jack and I, uh, uh, it's lots of fun. I, I made a note to look up. Euchre, because um, I see it's a card game and I've never played it, so I'm going to check it out. 
Yeah, uh, check out the women cards. Uh, particularly yeah. the, the history Lumen, Lumen cards, is that what you said? No, the women. Uh, oh, the women the cards. Women, women cards, and it's a euchre game? Yeah, well, the women cards are the uh, playing cards that my kids made. And then. Oh, euchre, they're the ones your kids made? Okay. Yes, yeah. That's uh, awesome. Zeb's the artist, uh, and so she's made uh, four, four uh, decks, and each deck uh, gets more beautiful than the previous one. Your kids are amazing. Published authors, made deck cards. I just found the womancards.com. Is that it? The yeah, womancards.com. Yeah. Oh, these are beautiful too. Holy they are, cow. aren't they? Oh, these are cool. That's awesome. All right. Now, I I love board games. Like with my kids, it gives us something to do. So we, you know, card games, oh, yeah. board games, stuff like that I've been doing with my kids. And now my son can read really well. And so oh, like he can start to play more games with us and be more engaged. So I'm like... We, started, we were playing a game well, last night. That, uh, uh, Zeb, Zeb discovered uh, um, a board game with Sherlock Holmes ooh. that uh, is lots of fun. It takes about three to four hours to do a case. And so uh, Zeb and I uh, will start a, a case and work it together. Do you know, and, and do you know the, what it's called? Um, fun. Well... Sherlock I don't Holmes know. There's game. there are these box sets Sherlock uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there we're on the fourth box. I'll look it up. Box set. Very Sherlock. very very fun. Sherlock. Holmes. And, and the the thing that I've loved uh, about the doing these cases, you you read the entry, you you get your interpretation of that information as you go through the case. We go back and reread. Uh, the entries, and now you have a little bit more information, a little more context, and you have a deeper meaning of what the implications are of that nugget of information. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Terry, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And your, I mean, your your story of what you've done, where you've come from, where you are now is just, and then the work you're doing now and into the future is just truly, truly inspiring. And uh, I'm just, you know, honored to uh, have this deep conversation with you. I know you're helping so many people out there and uh, I know this will go out and reach and, and help a lot more people. So um, yeah, thanks again. Much love to you, Nathan, as well. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others, subscribe to catch future episodes, and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.